Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest... And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day 
calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you very much for having me preach this morning. Um, this is a sermon that I had to prepare for Crosslands, which is a course I'm studying. Um, so it's written some time ago. So this last couple, this last week or so, has been trying to get it back into my head again. So if I stumble, please bear with me. Um, <clears throat> it is a fantastic passage, and it is a passage full of the promises of God. The thing is, I constantly struggle to trust the promises of God. Now, I really ummed and aahed about whether that was the best way to start this sermon. I mean, it doesn't really give you a lot of confidence to listen to me. And it doesn't really give you a lot of hope in what I have to say. If I don't believe it, then why would, if, if the preacher doesn't believe it, why would I? The thing is, I'm convinced that many of you struggle in the same way that I do. Now, there are times when I read something in scripture, or I hear a sermon, or even listen to a song, which tugs at my heartstrings so strongly that I feel a great love welling up for me, for Jesus and for all that he's done. The thing is, sometimes that feeling just goes away. Sometimes it lasts for a long time, sometimes it lasts for a few moments, but it does just seem to disappear. Why is that? Why does that happen? Why do I fail to trust in the great promises of God? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us it's because we have hearts which are prone to wonder. We doubt that God really wants the very best for us. We settle for pretty much anything which can bring us some temporary enjoyment or relief instead of trusting in God. Our big problem is not that we are too motivated by our own happiness. It's that we settle far too easily for a quick fix rather than for looking for God's eternal, never-ending happiness. And not just happiness, but rest. A rest that comes from a deep joy and satisfaction in God himself. Why is, it that we, why is it that we constantly struggle to trust in these promises and to constantly believe these things? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us it's because we have hearts which are prone to wonder. We have hearts which are prone to go hard. The question is, how can we fight unbelief? Well, as we explore this passage in Hebrews this morning, I hope to point out three things which the writer points us to. Firstly, he says that Christ is supreme. Secondly, he says that he alone can bring us true rest. And thirdly, point two is only true if we respond in faith. So point one, Christ is supreme. 
The book of Hebrews was primarily written to a group of Jewish converts, to the Hebrews who had become Christians. Now, largely due to persecution, many of them were starting to second-guess their decision to follow Christ. They were facing increased persecution, and because of that, they were considering turning back to Judaism. The author wrote this letter to encourage them that Christ had superseded their old religion in every single area. In uh, chapters 1 and 2, we see that Christ supersedes the prophets and that he is higher than the angels. In chapter 3, today's passage, we see that our attention is turned to Moses. Now, as Westerners living in Epsom today, it's almost impossible for us to fully grasp just how important Moses was to the Jewish people. Moses was the one who instigated the uh, sacrificial system and the temple. He was the one who took the law from God. Humanly speaking, if you were to remove Moses from the Old Testament, you've got almost nothing left. He is crucial. Now, the author makes no attempt to discredit Moses or put him down in any way. He actually speaks of him very highly. He effectively says to the Hebrews, you think Moses is great. Well, so do I. But Christ is greater. He says three key things. Moses was a member of God's house. Christ built the house. Moses was a servant in God's house. Christ is son over God's house. And at the heart of the argument, Moses was a man. Christ is God. The author wants the Hebrews to know that if they turn from Christ to Moses, they are forsaking God for a man. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that not many people in this room have seriously considered turning from Christ to Moses, of turning their back on Christianity and going to Judaism. If you have, then hear the words of this passage very clearly. Christ supersedes Moses in every single way. But what about the rest of us? What does it say to us and how does it help our unbelief? Well, to understand that, we need to consider why the Hebrews were so tempted to turn from Christ back to Moses. Firstly, we must understand that within the Roman Empire, which is where they lived, Judaism was a legal religion, whereas Christianity was illegal. Meaning that if they turned back from Christianity to Judaism, life would just simply be easier. They would face less persecution. Now, who here can't relate to that? I know that we don't face anything like the same level of persecution that they would have faced, but who here at one time or another has not thought, life would just be easier if I wasn't a Christian? Secondly, there was a temptation to turn from what was visible, uh, sorry, from what was invisible to what was visible. If you think of the two religions for one moment, as Christians, when we sin, we are called to bring our sin to the cross where Christ paid for our sin with his blood. Now, Christ dying on the cross was a real physical event which happened in history, but it happened in the past and we can no longer see it. And now we can no longer see Jesus either. On the other hand, Judaism, when they sinned, they would go to a physical temple, an actual building. They would see an actual priest who would offer a real sacrifice. A living animal would be killed. There would be real blood. They would be able to see it. In a similar way, the world tells us today, almost on a daily basis, that only what is physical is real. That only that which we can put under a microscope is what matters and is what is real. 
For now, we can't see Christ. We can't see the cross. At the moment, we hope in what is invisible. In our modern physical world, God has been relegated to the realms of unicorns and fairies. How easy it is to be seduced by that great lie that only what is physical is real. Thirdly, for the Hebrews, Judaism was the, father, was the religion of their fathers, of their fathers' fathers, all the way back to Abraham. Were they really to turn their back on all that tradition? For their whole lives, their entire identity had been wrapped up in being Jewish. And now they were being told to turn their back on that identity, to embrace a new way of life. <clears throat> now, I'm sure that anyone who's become a Christian later in life, or perhaps anyone who's considering becoming a Christian later in life, can appreciate how that must have felt. You might feel like your entire identity is wrapped up in who you were before becoming a Christian, and you don't want to give up on that identity. Well, in the same way that the Hebrews did, we need to hear what they did, that Christ is not just greater than Moses, he is greater than everything. And following Christ is not just better than Judaism, it is better than any other way of life. It's better than my former way of life and your former way of life and everybody's former way of life. We begin to fight unbelief by finding the greatest thing to believe in, in Jesus Christ. We're going to move on to point two, where the, the writer of Hebrews tells us one of the key reasons that Jesus is the greatest one to believe in. And that is because, point two, he alone can bring us true rest. <clears throat> now, modern life seems increasingly busy. Office hours seem to be getting longer and longer. Life can increasingly feel like a juggling act between life and family and work and church and friends and a hundred other things. More and more, life has a sense of rest, being restless. Now, we know that we need rest, but the thing is, we don't really know where we should be looking for it. The book of Hebrews reminds us that what we need is not simply rest, it is God's rest. To help us understand what God's rest is, he points us to the seventh day of creation, where God rested from his good work. Incredibly, though, he didn't rest alone. He invited Adam and Eve to join him in that Sabbath rest. They were able to actively enjoy and participate in the finished work of God. This is the ultimate perfect rest that the book of Hebrews points us to. The source of true rest is God himself. It is found only in him, in enjoying and participating in his finished work. For Adam and Eve, this meant enjoying the best thing of creation, that God dwelt with them. They were able to enjoy the presence of God himself. Tragically, we know that things soon change for the worse that man doubted God's goodness, that they doubted that he really had their best interests at heart and they rebelled against him and sin entered the world. This created a barrier between God and man, meaning that God could no longer dwell amongst his people. You see, because God is holy, only those who are holy as well can be in his presence. Mankind had now been cut off from God and subsequently cut off from God's rest. This is the big story of the whole Bible. 
God re-establishing a way of man being able to be with God again, of God being able to dwell with his people. For the Hebrews, the idea of rest was very tightly wrapped up in the physical promised land. However, our passage today takes us on a whirlwind tour of the whole Bible and shows that the physical promised land was never supposed to be our final resting place. It was a picture of it, a picture of something better which was yet to come. The author essentially says to the Hebrews, Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land, but Jesus, who is better than Joshua, is able to bring us into God's final rest. Jesus alone can do that because he alone took our sin and offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness that he paid for with his blood on the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus is able to offer his followers true rest. This is the central message of the book of Hebrews. Don't settle for the shadow or the picture when the real thing is on offer. Isn't that a message that we need to hear today? God has given us lots of ways of enjoying rest and there's nothing wrong with enjoying those things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying sleep or going out for a coffee or sitting watching Netflix or reading a book, whatever it might be that you do to unwind. But we must also recognise that all those things only offer a temporary physical rest and what we truly need is God's deep eternal rest. His rest which all other rest points to like happiness, our problem is not that we are too motivated by finding rest. It's that we settle too easily for the things which bring us temporary relief. <clears throat> we should be looking for the rest which we can only experience once we have been reconciled with God. We even have a taste of that rest now. The author calls this rest Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was always supposed to be a day when we practice resting in God, in his finished work. It wasn't supposed to be about a list of things which you can and cannot do. It was supposed to be a foretaste of this final perfect rest, which one day we will enjoy forever. This should excite us. It should cause us to look forward to that great day. The day when we will finally share in God's never-ending contentment. The end of that Monday morning feeling. The end of feeling restless. Well, let me ask you a question. Does your life testify to the fact that you are still waiting for that perfect final rest? Is that where you are setting your hope? Or are you setting your hope on an earthly rest? Are you settling for the shadow or the picture rather than recognising that the best is yet to come? It's important to point out that although we won't fully experience that rest until heaven, we can begin to taste it today. Chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. When we put our trust in Jesus, we no longer have to work and strive for God's acceptance. We don't have to prove ourselves worthy. Instead, we trust in what Jesus has done for us, that he has given us what we couldn't earn for ourselves. That is the scandal of the gospel. We've been given what we didn't deserve and could not earn. Because of that, we are able to rest in what God has done. 
But notice, the author doesn't tell us just to put up our feet and wait for glory. He tells us that we must strive to enter God's rest. Now, throughout our passage, and indeed the whole book of Hebrews, there is this real tension between resting on the one hand and striving on the other. You see, all the good news that we've heard so far, that Christ is supreme, that he is superior, and that he alone is able to bring us into God's true eternal rest, is only good news if, point three, we respond in faith. Now, if you've been coming to Emmanuel for a little while, I hope that you've become very familiar with the message that you cannot earn God's love, that you cannot make yourself good enough to win God's favour. As Paul says in Ephesians, you've been saved through, by grace through faith, so no one can boast. That's the heart of the gospel. Gospel meaning good news. But it's only good news if it's met with faith. There are two big ifs in today's passage. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. And then if that's not clear enough, look down at verse 14 of the same chapter. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. The gospel is good news, if we believe it. It is conditional. If you don't believe it, you can't receive all that it offers. You absolutely can't earn it, but you have to believe it. You have to respond in faith. And that faith needs to be a firm faith held until the very end. There's a repeated warning throughout our passage. Failure to believe will result in a failure to enter God's rest. Put very bluntly, the Israelites did not trust God and they did not enter God's rest as a result. Don't be like them. No, the author doesn't say they failed to enter because they grumbled or because they were ungrateful, or because, as we saw in the picture earlier, they had the audacity to build a golden calf whilst Moses was receiving the law. He doesn't suggest that sin was the main factor, but their unbelief was the main problem. And this wasn't just a slight wobble of faith. This was them saying, I wish you'd never even brought us out of, out of Egypt. Life was better as a slave. It's important to recognise this passage is not saying, if you sin, you will not enter God's rest. If that were true, none of us would have any hope. It is saying, if we fail to believe and respond in faith, then we will be like that first generation who failed to enter God's rest. Now, the author makes a strong link between our ability to believe and our hearts. When scripture talks about our hearts, it is not simply talking about our emotions. The heart is the centre of our self, of our mind, of our personality. It encompasses our will and our desires, our understanding. The thing is, a human heart is just like wax. If you leave wax at room temperature, it will go hard. In the same way, if you leave your heart in its natural condition, without making any attempt to soften it, 
then it likewise will go hard. The question I want to finish asking this morning then is, how do we soften our hearts? I want to suggest three things which the author points us to do to help us soften our hearts. So firstly, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the, in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't just think about him, but fix your thoughts upon him. This isn't just a passing glance. It means training yourself to think about him always. Consider who he is and what he's done. Dwell on his love and his power and his might. His justice and his mercy. Recognise that he is the very radiance of God. Practically, this means that we must pursue a relationship with him. Do you primarily think of your Christian faith as a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's what it should be. It's not just about reading stuff to know more. It's investing in a relationship. Now, please know that I'm preaching to myself here as well. I so often just go through the motions. When I read the Bible, I forget that I am hearing the living, active word of God, that I must submit myself to that word and allow it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of my heart. When I pray, I so often come to God with a list when really I should be bringing my heart and asking for him to enlarge it. If only we could just see how much Christ loves us. If we could experience the height and depth and breadth of God's great love for us, then our hearts would never go hard. So begin by fixing your eyes upon Jesus. Read about him in God's word. Come before him in prayer and consider him always. Secondly, it's a team game. Chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. We've become so individualistic in the West. We very much emphasise our own personal faith above everything else. But the Bible emphasises again and again that when we put our faith in Christ, we don't just receive a father. As John told us earlier, we become a member of a family. And as a family member, we have a responsibility to encourage one another daily. So that means when we turn up at church, we're not just coming to be encouraged, but we're coming to bring encouragement. Now, that doesn't mean an insincere enthusiasm about everything, pretending that everything's rosy when it's not. What it means is in the way that we talk and the way we think and the way we act, that we endeavour to point people to Jesus in everything that we do. Now, this could be in a prayer meeting or it could be in your weekly Bible study. But I really think there's so much to be said for the times this is done in an informal setting. When we're having a coffee before or after church. When someone recognises as they're talking to you that a good thing that happened to them this week was a gift from Jesus. Or maybe someone's had a really tough week and they ask you to pray for them. To pray that they would help them to fix their eyes upon Jesus in the storms of life. The more which we do this, the more which we share Jesus with one another, the more natural it will feel. And the more we keep doing it, not only the more we will encourage others, but the more which we will prevent our own hearts from hardening. Thirdly, <clears throat> don't 
Don't be deceived by sin. Again in verse 13, so it continues, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There is no doubt about it. Sin is a liar. It will tell you, it's okay. You're saved by grace, not works. A little bit of sin's not going to hurt. You can just say sorry for it later. The thing is that behind this thinking lies the assumption that God is trying to keep something good from you, that he doesn't really want the very best for you because he is not good, that he's some sort of cosmic killjoy who just wants you to follow the rules for the sake of the rules. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. The truth couldn't be further from this. He's not trying to stop you doing something by giving you rules. He's trying to give you life and give it to the full. He wants to show you that the way of sin leads to death, but God's way leads to life and life to the full. Choosing sin again and again will lead us to harden our hearts. Not only will we eventually not want to say sorry, we won't even feel sorry. We won't feel any need to come to Christ and repent for the wrong thing that we've done. And when we're in that position, we really are on dangerous ground. Now that might all sound like really hard work. Well, there's no two ways about it. That's because it is. That's why Hebrews uses words like striving, not striving to earn God's favour, but striving to fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in him. The gospel is good news, but only to those who respond with a firm faith, which they hold until the very end and do not harden their hearts. Now, all this may leave you thinking, what if I don't trust enough? What if my faith is too weak? Well, that's an excellent question and one I've asked myself. And to answer it, I've got to talk about a football match. <laughs> now, in November last year, along with a number of other people from the church, Emily and I took the girls to go and see the Lionesses, England's football team, England's women's football team, play Germany at Wembley Stadium. We went along with a number of other people from the church. A particular highlight for me was when James Knapper and I were told off by his son for booing too loudly. <laughs> Unfortunately, we lost the match, which was particularly painful because we missed a penalty. For an awful moment, I was transported back to the 90s where my childhood dreams of England lifting a trophy were dashed twice by Germans in penalty shootouts. Anyway... <laughs> That night was a record crowd for the Lionesses. Um, the thing is that after the game had finished, we had the somewhat daunting task of getting two young girls out of the stadium, onto public transport and home, along with 77,000 other people. Now, Emily and I decided to do some man marking. I've got two girls and they respond quite differently to loud noises and big crowds. One of them goes quite quiet and she clings to you. The other one does not. Her eyes go wide and she is drawn in a hundred different directions all at the same time. Anything will have her wandering off. People singing, flashing lights, pretty much anything shiny will have her walking off. That's the one I got. <laughs> so before we left the stadium, I got down to her level. I made sure she was giving me eye contact and I said to her, hold my hand. I said it twice. She begrudgingly gave me her hand, but you could tell she didn't really want to. 
Now as we walked out the stadium, we got closer and closer to the tube station, and as we did, the crowd just felt denser and denser. As we got towards the tube, her face began to change. The excitement began to give way to nervousness, and eventually nervousness to fear. As we stepped onto the tube, it was one of those ones where your face is up against the glass, you are rammed in like sardines. I could see she was properly now afraid. I could see that she was scared that she was gonna lose her grip on me. So I looked down at her and I smiled. And I said, I've got you. I'm not gonna let you go. You're my child. I love you. The thing is, she did have to give me her hand, but she didn't have to worry that her grip was not strong enough. She had to trust that it was me who hold her and not the other way around. I hope that this morning's passage has made you feel slightly uneasy. It should, it's full of warnings. Warnings that you must not harden your hearts, that we must believe, that we must trust, and warnings of what we can expect if we do not do those things. The mistake we make when we hear these warnings is we try and reach deep within ourselves to pull out some extra special faith this method will always end badly. And the writer of Hebrews knows this. He does want you to see that the gospel is only good news if it is met with a firm faith. But he also wants you to know that that faith does not come from fixing your eyes on yourself. It comes from fixing your eyes on Jesus and trusting in what he has done for you. Instead of fixing your eyes on yourself, you're striving to fix your eyes upon Jesus. It means that recognising that your hope is not based on the strength of your faith. It is based upon the object of your faith, on God himself, on his love and his strength. Now, there will be times in your life when all you can bring is faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, that's enough. You're not trusting in the strength of your grip. You're trusting in the strength of his you must not allow your heart to become heart. You must trust him and you must give him your hand, but it is him who will hold you fast. So today, consider Jesus. Put your trust in him, fix your eyes upon him and give him your heart. Trust in the finished work of the cross. Trust that he will bring us into his eternal perfect rest, not because we are good, but because he is good. Christ is better than anything else in all the universe. Give him your heart and he will hold it fast.